Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. I'm Joshua Miller, and welcome to the Think Critical Podcast. This week, we are meeting with Simon Lester of the Cato Institute to discuss international trade and what has happened to it under COVID-19. Yeah, I'm Simon Lester. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank in Washington, D.C. So, today we are going to be discussing, uh, well what's been going on in international trade as of late as concerning or considering the fact that coronavirus has, I think, changed the game. Is it probably a, an apt description? Oh, uh, clearly. I mean, it's been very disruptive to the, the actual practice of, of trade, the ability of, of companies to you know, sell goods uh, in foreign markets, um, to, to import goods from foreign markets. Um, and it's also affected the way we think about trade policy and, and you know, what, how, how to conduct trade negotiations, um, sort of the practical, how do we actually talk to our, our counterparts in other countries, and then also what should we be negotiating about what what's realistic these days so yeah i mean for, from from the actual transactions that take place to the the policy that governments make um it's been it's been disrupted um, just like everything else i mean our, our whole lives have been disrupted and it's not surprising that that trade um would also be disrupted so do you think in that case that these sort of changes to the way which we conduct trade are permanent or in a sense that um, that that in general, that globalism and the state of you know um, a large amount of of relatively free trade as compared to um, you know what we had at least post war or even earlier of that in human history um, is going to recede so that there's actually going to be like less trade from a peak that we've already peaked in the amount of trade which was conducted across the United, um, across the globe. I tend to think the changes are are not. Permanent. I think that our domestic economies will return to to some something more like what we're used to, and I think that international trade will as well. I, I do think there will be some some shifts, some changes. I mean, what what we're seeing um, in, in various different fields, uh, education and medicine, come to mind, or that well, we might be changing the way we we do business. Um, we're doing things more online than we were. Obviously, there was already a trend towards online, but this has accelerated it. And that might become somewhat permanent. So in the trade context, that might mean we think differently about how we do international trade. And there might be more of it in, in some ways. So, so for example, if you can now see your doctor online, which I personally did, I you know, made a point with a dermatologist and was able to sort of talk over, over a webcam and, and get some advice. Well, if you can do that, why not do it? Why can't you do it with somebody in another country? And, you know, so are there, there are actually new opportunities for, for trade um, that have been opened up or, you know, we, we were realizing that, that, you know, in some ways we can trade more easily than be, than before. And there'll be some things that'll be, you know, a little more difficult, uh, probably. And it'll be a while before we get back to the normal, you know, interactions that we have and traditional trade involves more personal interactions. So, but I think that the baseline is the, the, the trend towards trade and, and globalization will continue, 
Um, it's just that the, the forms of the forms will shift a bit, um, just like you know our domestic economy is shifting. Uh, the the international economy will also shift. So that that's my prediction. Um, you know, with the caveat that that this is all new and I've never seen anything like this. You know, maybe people. You know, if there's anyone still alive from the the Spanish flu in the, the 1910s, maybe they could you know weigh in here. But just based on from what I see, um, that this in what I see right now, this is a, a temporary blip. It's a big blip, but it's a, it's a temporary one. And our, the the trend towards more interaction uh, with, with people in other countries through your know, trade and and educational trips and tourism that is likely to to uh, you know continue on and we will get back to normal uh, that's you know, again a rough prediction based on just you know instincts more than anything and keeping in mind that we've we've never been in this situation before so it is hard to predict so um so what you're saying is like e-commerce and you know digital products will make trade you know easier to do and it will you know grow it because like for example, like a product that's entirely digital, it's it's hard to really care about the country of origin, um, because uh, there's like you know there's going to be less costs involved because the internet you know is fast to transport from uh, something just which is entirely on the internet from one spot on the internet to the other spot on the internet across the globe. It's the same cost, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to care about those 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 costs and, and uh, you know when you know as a, sort of an ordinary e-commerce, like it just doesn't matter where it came from. Now, you know, a caveat to that, I think, is that if you look at the the issues with um, sec- security concerns over the use of data. Uh, this might not be unlimited uh, in terms of the, the, the trade that takes place. And, you know, we're seeing right now uh, issues with, with China, uh, where you know, China has for a long time had their great firewall where, where they block a lot of uh, foreign websites. And, you know, now we're seeing the, the Trump administration do similar things to, to China. So, so there are limits to this. Uh, but assuming that there are countries we can trust out there, and I, I think that there are many of them, and I think, you know, even the, the strongest security hawks would agree with that. Uh, you know, sort of trade, digital trade with those countries, with actors in those countries, um, should generally flow freely. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that you know, I, I mean, it, it sounds a little strange to say oh, we're going to see it, you know, grow and proliferate, given that what we've seen so far. But I, I do feel like you know we're, we're seeing shifts in particular sectors towards more online trade. So I, I think we will continue to expand the possibilities for digital trade um, beyond what we can even imagine right now. Uh, just to give you an, an, another example, you know this is something that's been in the works for a while, but it might increase. So you know they, they now when when they're doing surgeries. Uh, they, they have uh, ro- robotic, uh, you know, surgical tools that they use, and um, you know, you, so what you could have is a doctor in an operating room with the the big robot, you know, right right next right next to him or her. Uh, but you could also do that with somebody in another country. So you know, for so if you have the the, the people, if the, the people who you know can run these devices um, or happen to be in one place. Uh, and they they can't you know get over to a foreign country to do the surgery. You could have like surgeons concentrated in, in certain areas of the world um, conducting surgeries all around the world. So I think my my point my general point is just that we're we're going to keep innovating and thinking about new ways to conduct digital commerce. So I think we're going to see continued growth in that area. Um, you know, the, as our capabilities increase, uh, we'll, we'll just keep keep coming up with new ways uh, to do trade. 
um, you know, over you know internet platforms in, in ways that you know it, it will it will seem routine in 20 years, but 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 right now it's 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 even hard to imagine what all the possibilities are. So, um, you know, going further into that with China at least, what is your sort of solution to China's, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, counter democratic or, you know, counter uh, good faith um, data practices um, in terms of, you know, constructing trade policy? Do you think it's best to ignore it and hope that, um, you know, the decreases in costs from trading in China are worth it? Or is there any way to sort of fight whatever China's, whatever China's doing, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a really hard question. I don't think anyone has an easy, you know, great, simple answer, and I don't either. I mean, my my best, uh, you know, su- suggestion here is that what the United States should do is uh, work more closely with its allies. You know, we've spent a lot of time in the Trump administration, but even before that, you know, criticizing and getting in sort of trade fights with, with allies, with Canada, with the EU, uh, about issues that, that are not unimportant, but perhaps aren't as important as China. And so, so I, I, I feel like we'd be better off putting those disputes aside and coming up with sort of a joint approach to China and, and trying to figure out what are the areas where we could actually push them to change? And you know, I, and I don't know the answer to that, but if you look at the, the long list of, of practices that the Chinese government engages in where somebody you know, has a concern, I, I mean, there, there's a lot on there. And I think what we have to decide is, well, you know, what's most important to us and, and what are we most likely to, to, to push China to, to change? Uh, so, you know, the, the, the Great Firewall and, and their, uh, so their restriction on um, foreign, you know, foreign e-commerce companies, foreign Internet companies um, operating in, in China or uh, their are alleged or theoretical, you know, use of, of data from uh, from people in other countries for, for spying purposes. You know, we, we, we come up, we should come up with a list of all of these things that, that we, we're concerned about and, you know, kind of figure out what our priorities are and then use uh, the economic leverage that, um, you know, a large group of, of the major trading countries uh, can, can put together and then go to China and say, look, you know, here's what we need. You know, we, we understand we're not going to turn you into a democracy overnight. I mean, we don't think that's realistic. Uh, but nevertheless, you're doing these 10 things and we need to see progress on some or, uh, you know, sort of de facto, there's going to be uh, a divergence, a decoupling. You know, uh, you, you, you're, the, the practices that you're engaging in are a great concern to our citizens. Um and you know, there's just no way around the fact that you're going to have to, to make some changes, or it's going to get worse. It's, it's sort of the, I mean, I feel like the government negotiators can almost say, you know, it's out of our control. <laughs> the message has spread. People are upset about this. Um, so you know, just sort of presenting that to China as this is the way it is. I think it could have some impact. I mean, I think it's worth a try anyway. I, I don't feel like we've really tried that. Uh, so I, I mean, that would be my suggestion for here's what we should try to deal with some of the problems uh, that we see in China. I know that uh, India tri- uh, tried an approach of, you know, banning Chinese products earlier this year, right? And the Chinese government did not like that at all. You think that something similar could work? Like, are you in favor? I guess the question is, are you in favor of banning TikTok? I personally am, but that's mainly because I don't like TikTok. Not, not any particular reason related to national security. 
I, I guess with TikTok, what I would want to know is what's the real threat uh, of, of the use of this data by the Chinese government? Um, you know, my general take on, on data is we need companies who are, are operating without using data as the, as the way to as the way to profit. Uh, we need companies who have a different business model. And, you know, so TikTok uh, and, and Facebook and all of them, Instagram, they're all doing similar things. And so there's that general problem. Uh, when you bring China and the Chinese government in, well, it becomes a, a specific other problem. Um, and I just I, I honestly don't know how much to worry about it. You know what? If I were using TikTok and the Chinese government had data on me, what would they do with it? You know, I just I can't really imagine. It doesn't seem like a, a real threat, um, whereas it seems like other things might be. So it, it, it seems to me that's maybe something of a misplaced priority. But if somebody can show me, you know, here's what the actual risk is. Here's what, you know. TikTok or the Chinese government has done with this data or might do with the data. I can see, you know, I can, I can see how it might be a real concern. I just I'm not sure in practice how it is. So um, so the banning TikTok, I mean, there, there's a couple of different elements to it. I mean, we can just ban them. We can prohibit TikTok from existing or we could force a sale. That seems like, you know, sort of a more logical approach, like, all right, you know, we would just like a different owner. We would just like Microsoft or Oracle to own it. They will then have access to your data, and that presents problems of its own, but at least it's not the, the Chinese government um, who could be doing something particularly nefarious with it. So, so I don't know. I think my, my take on TikTok is there's a lot I don't know and don't understand about this, and I'm just not sure that this is the this big a concern as, as some people are presenting it. Uh, but it might be, but I just, I'd like to hear more evidence of, of, of what the real risks risks are here. I have not used TikTok myself. I guess I maybe have seen a couple videos posted from it. It seems like a silly waste of time to me, uh, but that's okay. You know, we all have our, our personal interests and some people might you know say that the things that I'm interested in are, are a waste of time. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I just basically summing up, I, I'd want to hear some, some real evidence about what the problem is here. Um, it's assuming the Chinese government is either even bothering paying attention to this data, what would they do with it and how would that really be bad? I mean, I almost think, though, that what we what we might want to do is just um, infiltrate TikTok and give them lots of useless data or, or you know, or data that confuses them. <laughs> like, it seems like you can you can undermine you know, any potential harm from this in various different ways. But, but you know, this, this gets into really sort of technical issues that are beyond trade policy and I'm, I'm not really an expert in. So, so I should probably stop talking now because at a certain point I realize I don't actually know what I'm talking about. Uh, aren't we already technically like, um, you know, infiltrating TikTok with tons of useless data? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm utterly confused by my, by my generation. I have no idea what they're doing at any point given point in time i i spend half my day on econ lib i don't know why but i do um so uh, you know i think with with the with the data issues of in tiktok um a lot of the time some of the, the complaints made against it are awfully similar to the ones where you see like the older members of congress like complaining about facebook with or like they're yelling at the at the at the google ceo about things they saw on facebook and vice versa um, and it's it's sometimes it feels like it's like a it's like a technological literacy gap that really you know gets these politicians to sort of misunderstand how the internet is kind of even though you can influence it certainly as a government it's it's ultimately out of your control it's ultimately decentralized and like many other things in our modern life it's decentralized it's not controlled by anybody which is pretty great. 
Well, that that frustrates the government folks, I think. And you get, you know, a bunch of them from different political perspectives all getting upset about how it's decentralized and how they don't have control over it. And, you know, so you see demands to to tax it or to regulate it or to break it up. And I, I, yeah, I don't know how familiar many of these people are with, with the details of all this. And a lot of it just seems like political grandstanding. But, you know, I mean, that is politics. <laughs> you know, you can complain about political grandstanding, but what else? I mean, that, that's sort of inherent in politics. It's always been there. It will always be there. So, you know, we're, we're never going to really be satisfied about how any policy is made, um, much less this, you know, newfangled, sophisticated Internet stuff where, you know, you have politicians who, I mean, they're just... I don't think many of them, I mean, maybe there are one or two, they're just not really trained in this. This wasn't their background. Um, so it's it's not too surprising that they're not that good at, at, at talking about it. Uh, and, and they 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 confuse basic issues like which, which company does what and, and, you know, they don't have a good sense of, of what the data is. So, but sorry, I think I cut you off. You, you were going to a, a, another question. Yeah. So, um, you know, thinking more about China. So a lot of people brought up like supply chain issues, especially when there is a shortage of medical supplies or a supposed shortage of medical supplies. Although I'd argue, um, and I think a Scott Sumner brought up this point a couple months ago, that half of the shortage of medical supplies were caused by the government not knowing how to allocate things. Um, but when there was a shortage of medical supplies earlier in the crisis, a lot of people, you know, blamed international supply chains, especially supply chains with China. So, you know, how would you sort of respond to, you know, a critique of free trade as relating to like supply chain issues and over-reliance on foreign countries for essential goods? I think that, um, you know, when you have a, a pandemic or, or other natural disaster, uh, you're going to discover certain things about your supply chains. Uh, it might turn out that in a particular case, um, you know, ha- having your supply chains in some foreign country was a problem. It also might turn out that in another case, having a supply chain domestically uh, was a problem. So, you know, let's say you have this factory producing uh, surgical masks or some other medical equipment, and hey, there's an earthquake there. Uh, you know, so I, I, I think that the instinct among some people, I don't think it's a big group, but some people that to, to, to fear foreigners, it's sort of their, their, it plays into their existing fear of foreigners, um, is, is misguided. And, and we shouldn't just think we can't trust the foreigners uh, to bring all the supply chains home. Um, it may be that there are particular you know, foreign governments who are hostile to us uh, and we don't want to be too dependent on them. I can see that you don't want 90 percent of uh, you know, some crucial product ventilators being made in Iran. You know, obviously, you, you, can, you can see that. But for the most part, I think that uh, dependence on interdependence with um, foreigners is good um, to to help mitigate the risks. Um, you, you don't want all your eggs in one basket. You know, you, you want to have a diverse uh, you know ch- uh, diverse set of supply chains so that if yours get disrupted, um, you have somebody else that that you can go to. If you think about uh, medical supplies as something you need to hoard and be self-sufficient in, um, when you have that disaster domestically, which you will, um, you may be out of luck. You know, if, if you're not going to engage in trade with others, uh, when you need their help, they, they, they won't be there, you know. Uh, so I think that if you're thinking about mitigating risks and promoting the, the, the overall health of your economy and the ability to to, um, to 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 get the products you need when you need them, you would rather have 
a, a high degree of interdependence, you know, with the caveat that, yes, you don't want to be overly dependent on some hostile foreign power. Uh, you know, does China fall into that category of hostile foreign power? I mean, it feels like the relationship is going in that direction. I'm not sure that it's really necessary to, to, to bring it in that direction. And I, I feel like some people are, are pushing it there, even though it doesn't need to be there. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, I do, you know, if, if it's true, and I'm not sure that it is, I mean, I hear these numbers thrown out, but there doesn't seem to be much evidence for them. If it's true that 80% of our, you know, pharmaceutical drugs were from China, yeah, I'd be concerned. And and I'd want to know what the numbers are. Like, what, what are the actual numbers? When people have dug into those numbers, they, they tend to find it's not actually 80 percent, uh, you know, of our pharmaceuticals that come from China. Uh, but I, I think that, it, you know, we, we do want to identify what the, the crucial products are for, for dealing with pandemics and other natural disasters. And we do want to know um, the extent we're dependent on imports and where those imports come from. Uh, but I think only in the extreme cases would it, uh, you know, provide reasons to to change up the supply chains. Uh, if, if we're getting, you know, a, a significant percentage of some medical product from Canada, I wouldn't worry. You know, I'm just, I'm not concerned about that. That's okay. Um, so, so I think there are really only rare circumstances where, where the numbers would point us to, you know, a, a need to change the supply chains. And, and the, the call for bringing supply chains home, I think, it is, would create more of a problem. That, that's riskier uh, to only, to be self-sufficient and not have anyone we can count on when we need help, which we will. I think that's more of a problem. So I, this is a, a, a case where I think the, the cure is often worse than the disease. And, and generally speaking, interdependence um, in, in these crucial products is, is for the best. Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting point I really heard before, the idea that um, you know interdependence will foster, you know, will get us more cooperation. Now, I do know that, right, with interdependence in, in more trade, not only does it lower costs, which is, I think, really underrated, that high costs can be absolutely devastating to just the efficacy of anything during a crisis, but also that uh, having, you know, freer trade will make it so that, you know, countries are more peaceful and that they're forced to work together more. So, so the best way to fight China isn't to shut ourselves off from them and lose, you know, and lose half of our manufacturing. It's to continue to trade with them and make them more like us. And that's the ultimate victory is the cultural victory. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that people have gotten frustrated that it didn't happen yet. It, it, you know, it's 2020 and you promised us they would be a democracy and they're not. Um, and I just I, I think that changing countries cultures is something that is is not it's not going to go according to any particular plan or strategy it does seem to happen over time i mean i think you can look at south korea and taiwan and say hey these were some pretty undemocratic places and we engaged with them and then they did change but there's just no one path to it there's no one model and so so my recommendation with china is you got to give it more time i mean it's a big country it's a lot of people i think 
think that our interactions with, with the Chinese, when, when we uh, build factories over there, when they build factories over here, when their students come here, I think that's all for the positive. And I think long term, that is what will wake up the, the Chinese people to say, you know, we, we want that, too. You know, we've seen what they have in the West and it's a mess and it's not perfect, but it's better than, than what we have here. Um, so I, I think that long term engagement is the, the only way to do this. And, and the idea that somehow decoupling and cutting ourselves off, I mean, I look at it, and this is probably a bit you know, too simplistic, but I look at it and say, well, you know, what the, what the people who want to disengage from China are, are really saying is we want to we have our Cuba policy and apply it to China. Um, you see what we've done with Cuba over the last 60 years where we cut them off and isolated them? That's what we want. Uh, but I look at that and say, well, that looks like a failure. <laughs> you know, we spent 60 years trying to, to bully Cuba into, you know, something, liberalizing, democratizing. That's gone nowhere. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that kind of approach tends not to work and the engagement tends to work. Uh, but, you know, there, I, I can't give you a time frame. I mean, I, I don't know when and China is is just bigger by, you know, orders of magnitude, uh, you know, than other countries we, we've had to do this with. But I think that engagement is the way towards peace and prosperity and, um, and, and changing other people's culture to, to be more like ours. I look at our society and think, look, you know, for all its warts, for all the problems, all the, the street protests right now, it's pretty good. It is better than what I see in, in much of the world. Um, so I'd like to just hold it. I'd, I'd like to perfect our society a bit more um, to, to be able to, to hold it up as an example so other countries could look at it and say, you know what, we'd like to have what they have. One of the uh, previous guests on our podcast, Dr. Kamal Kumar, he sort of said that, in effect, China is just like a hundred years um, later down the path, a hundred years earlier down the path of like going from an undeveloped nation to a developed Western nation. And that the, what they're doing right now is just sort of reminiscent of stuff like Britain or France in the 18, in the early 1800s or so of extreme protectionism. So that there is a point where China will realize that freer trade and the more honest practice and the more liberal practice is actually going to be beneficial for them. It's just that they're not at that point yet where it's going to be ultimately more beneficial, but they will be, uh, you know, eventually. And that, that's the point we need to hold out for is making sure that, that the smooth transition to there is, yeah, is that's managed. Absolute, that's absolutely how I see it. And I think that there's a tendency, you know, to say, you know, here's what we're like now. Why don't you just be like that? Why aren't you like that? But if you look through the history of, of Western nations, I mean, you know, they, there's always some, you know, undemocratic or, or, or other, you know, flaw. Um, so you look at the European nations, you can certainly see in many of them the, the authoritarian precursor uh, to the democracy they have now. And the United States sort of obviously started off as a democracy. That's what kind of, you know, we, we started off as, hey, we're going to be a democracy, you know, an imperfect one. But we have plenty of other flaws and failure to protect rights. Um, so, so I think yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it is China is just at an earlier stage of its political and economic development. And, you know, how did we evolve into what we are now? I mean, everyone took their own path. And I, I just I think that China is going to take its own path. I mean, I do. I, I think that this belief is sort of out of style these days. But I do think there's a, a natural evolution to better societies. And those better societies involve um, free markets and, and democracy and the protection of rights. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I can't steer you. I don't know how to steer a particular country, especially one of 1.4 billion people in that direction. But it does seem like that's the direction most countries have gone. And, you know, we, we worry these days about, you know, backsliding to authoritarianism. And, you know, I worry about it a bit, too, things the Trump administration has done, perhaps. But, I mean, come on. I, I, I don't think we're, we're going that far back. I mean, we, we've gone way forward. And the, these little backward steps we're taking are, are I think, sort of minor in the, in the grand scheme of things. So I, I still believe there's a natural direction towards free markets and democracy, and that, that's where China will go. Uh, but, you know, uh, is it going to be five years, 50 years, 100 years? That I couldn't tell you, unfortunately. So it's sort of like in effect, Fukuyama was right, that there is sort of an end point to evo- ideological evolution. It's just a matter of getting the countries in line at that end point. I think that's right. And, you know, I'm not a political scientist. And, you know, my sense is everyone is dunking on Fukuyama and saying, hey, you know, that turns out that was all wrong. Um, No, I think it was basically right. (laughs) I think that's where countries are going. And and the catastrophes that we build up, you know, here in in the West, I think are overstated. You know, Brexit, the UK leaving the European Union, Ah, you know, whatever. I mean, I I wouldn't have done that myself, uh, but I I don't think it's sort of, uh, you know, the the end of the end of history. It's it was a decision. It was a democratic decision people made and you can criticize it. But, you know, this this isn't authoritarian authoritarianism or anything that. Uh, you know, concerning and, and Trump. Look, I get worked up as worked up about Trump as any of the anti-Trump folks. Uh, but you know, I, I I don't see a fundamental threat to our our democracy here. Uh, I think we'll have an election. We'll see who wins, and then the, the winner will will take office. So uh, so yeah, I, I I still believe in in that. You know, with with I'm throwing a lot of caveats out here. With the caveat that I'm not a political scientist and I don't know the details of, of Fukuyama's theory, but you know, in general terms. I still believe it. I think that's where everyone's going. Uh, now, there are things that can that can get in the way of that, like pandemics or, you know, a collision with an asteroid, you know, th- things like that. There are things that can get in, in the way. Uh, so, so you know, I, I should put that out there as saying, well, th- things are not as that certain. Uh, you know, you, suddenly you're dealing with the, this crisis and there's an instinct there to, hey, let the let the big government handle it. And, and that can push us a bit in the other direction. Uh, nevertheless, I think on, on balance, my view is, you know, we're all heading towards free markets and, and democracy. That's the place we should go and we should want to go. Uh, you know, and, and when I say free markets and democracy, it doesn't have to be some extreme form. It can be some sort of, you know, Scandinavian uh, welfare state. You know, you can still you can still have high levels of government intervention and still have basically free markets and democracy. I might prefer less of the government intervention, uh, but I'm not going to get too concerned if, if, you know, the government's handing out a universal basic income or something, even if I'm not, you know, even if it's not the, the policy I would prefer, uh, you still have the core in place of uh, let's let the private sector uh, do most of the business and let's let's have the government decided by, you know, voting uh, votes from the people. Although in general, if we are to have a welfare, a UBI is probably one of the more libertarian forms along with maybe the NIT, just because it, it emphasizes choice. Uh, like I, I, I agree with that. I mean, that, that is true. Um, I, I, I tend to be skeptical of it. I just, I, I don't 
necessarily like that. The, the, the principle, I don't like the principle of handing out money to people who don't need it. I, I you know, I, and I understand why means testing is complicated and costly, but to me, that just seems more, uh, appropriate. You know, I, you know, if you, if there are people who just don't have money and need it for food or housing, uh, I, I'd be happy to give it to them. And the idea that we're just going to give it to everyone, bothers me, although, uh, again, uh, the, the case for the simplicity and the lower cost of doing it that way, I agree, are compelling. So so I'm a skeptic on the UBI, uh, but I, 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 see the, I see the argument for it. Yeah, usually when I'm arguing like UBI versus NIT, and I'm an NIT supporter as opposed to a UBI supporter, um, like whenever they say, well, why don't you just make the UBI taxable and then we'll just take the money back in tax, I kind of say, well, why would you bother giving the money to them in the first place? It's kind of, it's too much state. It's inefficient. Yeah. I know. And I say the same thing, and, and the the answer tends to be it's just sort of simpler to, to do it that way rather than to make that initial calculation of who to give it to. I don't feel like that should be that complicated. You know, I, I feel like we must have uh, income records through the IRS of, of who has what money to be able to give us a, um, a sense of who needs it. But 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 maybe I'm wrong. You know, I haven't looked at that data. Um, so my instinct is figure out who needs it and give it to them rather than give it to them and tax it back. That seems crazy to me. Uh, but may, maybe it is easier. You know, the way the systems are set up, maybe it's actually easier that way. So I, I can't discount that. Uh, that just, yeah, it, it seems wrong, but it may be right. It seems like it would require at least a little bit less bureaucracy. And as we all know, bureaucracy is the, uh, is the you know, the downfall of any government program. So we've already covered how um, trade during the pandemic has changed. But how, have you, how do you think trade will change after the pandemic? Um, and how do you think trade organizations and governments will approach trade? Because right now they're, they have to approach it in a, you know, in a different way. They have to be more secure about their supply lines and about, um, and about the products and their, and it's harder for them to negotiate. But, you know, in, in the future, how do you think they're going to negotiate in this post pandemic world? How do you think they're going to take care of business? I guess, so to say. I feel like and this maybe strays a little bit from, from your question, but I, I feel like we've gotten stuck in a rut on trade negotiations. And, and what, what governments tend to do is go to their business sector or, or, or other you know, uh, you know, influential interest groups and say, what do you want here? And then they take what they've been told by the, these you know, interest groups, and then they go to the other governments and say, all right, let's see what we can hash out. And we may have just reached the, the limit of that. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of stuck. What everybody wants is for the other countries to open up their markets and for our country to stay closed. And everybody kind of feels like, well, we got a bad deal in the last one, uh, so we're not going to open up more. And what we need is for you to open up. And I feel like with that attitude, with that approach, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> so one thing I've written recently is what we need is – Somebody who's an actual believer in free trade uh, as a source of peace and prosperity um, to sort of rise above the interest groups and push this through. So somebody like Cordell Hull, famous secretary of state during the Roosevelt administration, who was a passionate believer in all this stuff and pushed us towards the, the system we have today. What we've got instead right now is a, a protectionist administration who's a sort of true believer in, in economic nationalism and isn't listening to the interest groups. Uh, so I, I said, listening, maybe we've listened to interest groups too much. 
um, and we need to stop. But th this group has stopped and pushed us in the nas economic nationalist direction. And what I'm saying is we might not get out of our current rut until we have somebody who's willing to push back against the interest groups and push for actual free trade where we open up. You know, so we need somebody who's willing to open up our own market. We don't have that. So, so I just see us, you know, since in the last 20 years, as as mostly stuck in a rut and trying. You know, every now and then with some success on sort of smaller trade negotiations, this bilateral deal here or there, uh, but just not big picture changes. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, I, I think it might take um, sort of a, a true believer, a free trade crusader to come in and say, look, I believe in this stuff. Uh, we're going to do it. It's important. Uh, I, I, I know that, that this, you know, this company or this industry uh, doesn't want to have to compete with with foreigners, but I think it's important that we do. Uh, I think it's beneficial for the economy to do it. So, so that's maybe not the, the 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 not answering the question you were asking, but I think that's that's the way I would think about what trade organizations you know are are supposed to be you know, can can do. So you know, take the World Trade Organization. I don't know that there we can have much success success in negotiating trade deals at the World Trade Organization until uh, we have some leading governments who are, are actually willing to uh, to proactively liberalize. And as long as everybody goes into it with the mindset of, hey, we got screwed in the last deal and you guys need to open up um, until, until we can get past that mindset. We're just kind of stuck, you know, where we're going to stay in the, the same route we have been for the last you know, many years. Well, one thing I do know is that, um, uh, you know, the potential vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, that she's in favor of returning to TPP, which I am actually very excited about. All she has to do now is endorse nominal GDP level targeting. And, and then suddenly she's my she's a favorite candidate. Um, my, you know, my one concern is that Biden will fully embrace protectionism. If you were to win, but I'm hoping this is more of an electoral strategy than it is a, like a strategy for most of his presidency. Because I think we noticed, you know, Obama and um, and Clinton before him both ran on a more economic, you know, like left or economic nationalist sort of platform, and then moved to the center. And I'm hoping that that the Democrats do become the free trade party because the Republicans certainly aren't going to co uh, come back to being the free trade party. So assuming that we're going to remain a two-party system, I, I think we really do need the, the Democrats to fully embrace globalism, free trade, more immigration. I, yeah, I don't know that they'll fully embrace it, um, but they may at least tolerate it and, and do some positive things there. Uh, you, if you look at Biden's record, he's voted for some trade agreements. He's voted against some trade agreements. I mean, I, I think he sees it, sees trade agreements as just, you know, one of the many items that happens in politics. And there's reasons for, for some and, and reasons uh, you know, he, he supports some you know, for, for certain reasons. He opposes some for other reasons. Now he, he's in a different position. You know, so as, as a senator, you're in one position, but as a president, you have to deal with those other countries a lot more. And you want to get along with them. You want to do things with them. Um, so you're naturally going to, you know, come up with ways that they, you can sit down and work with them. And that's what the TPP was uh, when he was vice president. As president, I don't think you know, trade will be trade deals will be at the top of his agenda, but I think at a certain point he'll he'll recognize that you know he needs to 
come up with things to do with other countries. And I think there's a strong logic behind uh, a trade deal such as the TPP. You know, you can rename it, you can tweak the term, so it's not like the old bad TPP, and that's fine. But something like the TPP or something like a trade deal with Europe uh, to bring us closer together with, with those allies, our free market democracy allies, uh, you know, for, 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 for its own benefit, but also for the purpose of um, dealing with the problems related to China. So I, I feel like that is somewhat inevitable. Uh, might not happen right away. You know, it might take a year. We might still be in the midst of a pandemic, and that'll keep us distracted. But you know, if you let a year or two go by, yeah, I feel like you know, in a Biden presidency, I feel like uh, Biden would push towards that. And I feel like to the extent that Kamala Harris has influence over these these things, I mean, I, I think that she her her rhetoric around trade definitely shows that she's an economic internationalist. Uh, she has stated clearly, she said, I'm not a protectionist Democrat. Um, what she seems to want is, uh, in any trade deal, it's got to address climate change in some way. And you know, there are ways to do that that are, are less sensitive and controversial. Uh, you know, I think you're still going to, I think you would, in a Biden administration, you would still see um, action on like the, the, the Paris Climate Accord um, as sort of the central focus of their climate change policy. But if they want to throw in a reference in a trade agreement to what they're doing in the, the Paris Agreement, that, you know, that, that could probably work politically. I mean, it's not necessarily what I would recommend doing, but, you know, I could see how politically that is what would have to happen. So, so uh, you know, I don't mean to, uh, you know, dampen your enthusiasm too much. I, I don't think that, that Biden or the Democratic Party is going to be full-throated free trade supporters, um, but I think that they'll they'll recognize the political reality, the international relations reality, that they have to do something positive here, uh, and that's likely the direction. We, we will, I think, to some extent, have a repeat of the Obama administration trade policy, um, just hopefully more successful. <laughs> so, you know, don't spend all this time negotiating the TPP and the TTIP and then get nothing out of it. Yeah, I, I noticed that... Um with politicians then discussing trade, there's a general trend that one of the big roadblocks people have, or one of the big concerns is that China does currency manipulation and other methods to sort of pump its numbers up. And I, I think that, you know, I think the world's greatest free trade um, advocate, uh, you know, was probably Milton Friedman. And what he would say in these situations was that it doesn't really matter about the like comparing the strengths of the two nations it's really all about the consumer and there needs to be more of a consumer focus because if 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 the foreign nation like china is doing all this like manipulation stuff to try and um you know pump its numbers up it's still going to be lowering costs for our consumers and so that's 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 helping us more and it should be less of a national focus and more of an individual focus of course this is like you know this doesn't you know make sense to politicians who are you know uh, obviously in a position of power I think that they should have power but, but I think that's basically right I, I do think I do have some some concerns about things like currency manipulation or subsidies like it may be true that that somebody else's subsidies benefit our consumers but they also distort production markets and that's bad you know we want companies to be making their production location choices based on the market not on uh, who's thrown around subsidies so I, I'm in favor of international rules that, that put limits on things like subsidies and we, we have those at the WTO and they've been only sort 
sort of modestly successful. We may need to, uh, you know, upgrade them a bit. So, so I do think that focus on the consumer is important, and that gets lost uh, a lot in the debate. Um, but, but we do also want to uh, push against uh, tariffs and and subsidies and, and other you know trade distorting practices. Um, within limits. I mean, we it's, you know we don't want to go too far in, in terms of how you know how far we encroach into domestic policy making, but we do want to try to define what are the the really bad protectionist practices and can we put international rules in place that 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 where, where we all agree to to limit what we do. So yeah. So you know we've already looked at today all of like the possible new realities and all the changes that are happening in trade. So. If, we're, if you're going to advise the government what to do about international trade, what is like in short your, your list of policy recommendations that you'd give to every politician who works in the federal government who has could possibly influence the issue? Like what, what's in short your recommendations to governments about international trade? I mean the, the basic principle – you know, sort of the economic principle is that, you know, engaging with others, economic internationalism is, is makes us better off. And, you know, you might think that something like Buy America uh, as a, in terms of government procurement um, makes sense. Like it's got America in the title. It sounds patriotic, but it's actually making us worse off to restrict our choices. And I think if we if we understand that principle, if politicians understand that principle, that, that economic nationalism makes us work worse off, uh, we, we start off in a really good place. Uh, so, so I would say, so as a matter of domestic economic policy, this economic nationalism makes us worse off. And then uh, the, the second principle would be that, that working closely, engaging with other countries um, is, is good for peace and prosperity. So, uh, so if you just think about it from a domestic perspective, we're better off by, by, by not engaging in economic nationalism. But what can, what can enhance that is to to work with other countries um, to to constrain all of our economic nationalism. So it's good to to do things ourselves. It, it sets a good example. But we, we can lock it into place in international agreements where we we all agree that like we're we're going to engage with each other economically. Um, that that enhances the prosperity and also helps promote good international relations and peace. So I would say these sort of two basic principles that that economic internationalism is good for our economy and that uh, you know, international economic agreements are, are good for our relations with other countries. And so we, you know, within that, you get into all kinds of nuances and specific rules and specific programs. But I think those, if, if, if politicians can be uh, convinced of those two basic principles, uh, we're going in the right direction and, and we're much better off. Thank you, Mr. Lester, for joining us today in the Think Critical Podcast. Glad to be here with you. 